Yo, welcome to the Not Investment Advice Podcast. It's your boy Trung, NIA fam. We got two episodes for you this week. A little bit special situation because the NBA Finals are starting tomorrow. Uh, most of you may know I'm a huge basketball fan. So I got Coach Nick from B-Ball Breakdown and Coach Colin from Shot Mechanics, two of the largest YouTube basketball channels in the world, 830,000 and 1.4 million subscribers respectively. They came on to talk NBA Finals, the business of the NBA, their decade-long careers as YouTube creators, what's changed, what they've learned. And we spent a big chunk talking about Steph Curry, who obviously plays Golden State Warriors who are playing the Boston Celtics in the finals. So this episode was honestly amazing. And uh, later in this week, keep your ears and eyes peeled for the episode where me and Bilal interview Jack Butcher about some questions that came out of the NIA Telegram group, namely around his building versus betting thesis and a new product that came out of the visualized value drop that he was involved with. Very interesting stuff. Uh, I think you'll enjoy the episode now with Coach Nick and Coach Colin, and uh, we'll be chatting soon later this week. Thank you. All right, Not Investment Advice podcast listeners, this is a, a little bit different today. Uh, you know, we're always looking to bring interesting point of views, and tomorrow, uh, this comes out on Wednesday, tomorrow will be the NBA Finals, uh, Game 1. Uh, that's on Thursday, right? Thursday. Yeah, that will be on Thursday. Uh, so I'm here with uh, Coach Colin Castellal and Coach Nick Hasselman. Uh, I hope I got those correct broadly <laughs> um, <laughs> for the uh, for the views uh, and the listeners uh, who may not be familiar uh, i hope there aren't too many um coach nick runs b-ball breakdown about eight hundred thirty thousand subscribers on youtube uh, has been doing breakdowns as the name suggests of basketball games for over a decade uh coach colin runs shot mechanics uh, the youtube channel over a million uh, subscribers and uh, also uh, has a, a players media group uh which does a media uh, a, a distribution arm and also i know is it uh the training uh and uh the training app right yeah uh so the first question is that i like to throw to the coaches uh well first of all did i get the all the details correct about what you are mostly up to right now yep okay pretty much Pretty much. Uh, you know, the shop mechanic stuff for me is mostly on autopilot right now. So definitely focusing more on the players media group side. Okay. Like you mentioned, we kind of have, you know, a bunch of professional athletes as partners, investors, um, and that sort of stuff. And basically they create entertainment content on one side of the company with players, TV, uh, reality shows, documentaries, et cetera. And then the other side is pro class, which is virtual training, kind of like shop mechanics on steroids with, uh, you know, drills, breakdowns, workouts, and all that sort of good stuff. Absolutely. And coach Nick, you have a number of media projects. Is that correct? People breakdown being one of them. I mean, it's all b-ball breakdown. That's the hub. And then obviously there's the live stuff we do and then there's Twitter and there's Instagram and all the other things, but it's all, it's the bread and butter is, uh, is are the game breakdowns and the, uh, and the, uh, you know, longer form, you know, player breakdowns and, and what they're doing. Absolutely. So um, I believe you two are the Al Pacino and Rob De Niro of the <laughs> YouTube basketball <laughs> world. So I'll what I want to ask, <laughs> you'll take it. So before we hopped on this call, uh, I did ask if you two, because of the history on basketball, YouTube, NBA, YouTube, you have connected in the past. How often have you interacted uh, over the past decade and uh, have been watching each other's rise basically come together on the similar platform? 
Well, I mean, I know we've spoken on the phone a bunch of times. I, I have images in my head of like driving back from Vegas uh, from like summer league on those long uh, drives. And like it, a number of times talking to Colin on those trips uh, just about basketball. And it was great to, it's nice when you connect with someone who, who gets it, but also um, can like take things even a step further and understand what we're trying to do and how to just improve teaching uh, with the methods that we, I had grown up learning. And I think Colin's a little younger than me, but he probably got a, a taste of that as well. So, um, you know, there, there's two ways that coaches can respond to a lot of the things that I'll talk about as far as uh, the out of the box stuff or the, or the, you know, pushing the envelope. And, and a, a lot of times it's negative and just like it, terrible. And it's like, why, you know, I get it. If you want to react and say, that's just not for me. Okay. But there is a subset that just simply wants to tear you down and, and be really mean and, and, and awful. Uh, and then Colin comes along and he's like totally taking everything that we are doing and, and, uh, and expanding on that. And then, figuring other things out that were always really cool. So it was great to be able to connect with him uh, and just know that he was always open to like, you know, whatever we were talking about and how much we wanted to push things. Yeah. You know, I think it's funny because I, I would say that Nick and I are two of the like early pioneers in kind of the online digital, you know, kind of training uh, ecosystem. Like I want to say when I got onto YouTube, the largest basketball channel on there was maybe like 20,000 subscribers, something like that. So we were pretty early and, uh, you know, definitely heavy punching bags for the coaching industry. I think <laughs> where, you know, Nick and I, from, you know, kind of all our conversations we've had is we're both kind of creative outside the box thinkers thinking about, you know, skill development and also just the game in general, kind of a different lens than I think a lot of traditional coaching. And because of that, uh, you know, we took a lot of hate <laughs> as we grew so did you, uh, did and you? a lot of pushback. I, I, I'm not as aware that you were taking a lot of hate too. Were you were doing that? That was happening to you as well. A lot of hate, a lot of, hate. and it's funny because a lot of the same people that were hating early uh, in the process, I now see have implemented a lot of the exact same stuff that we've been screaming from the rooftops for you know the better part of a decade now. So it uh, it, it was definitely an interesting uh, beginning, that's for sure. Well, you both actually have very similar backgrounds in the sense of like Coach Nick. You, I know you did commercials, you did a lot of uh, video kind of high end production. Uh, uh, Coach Colin, you created, I think, 200 videos, like top of the line equipment. I think it was 2011, 2010. You went to your wife and like, hey, by the way, we're putting all our savings into running this like a uh, uh, video project that we're going to do. I know you had owned a website before you even upload to YouTube. So your video backgrounds, were you guys aware that you guys had the similar kind of the video? I, I think Coach Nick probably had a longer professional career in video, but Coach Colin, like you were putting major assets and time into the video side of it, even before the channel. Right. Yeah. Well, what's funny is I didn't even know Nick had a background in, in that until literally like maybe last week when we were talking on the phone and, you know, we were talking about some kind of projects and some opportunities. And he was like, Oh, actually I have this background in media before even the b-ball breakdown. So I was like, Oh, well, it totally makes sense why your stuff has such great stories and, you know, kind of like the way that it's presented is very entertaining. Um, so I didn't even know Nick had a background in that. My background is actually more so on the art design side of the equation. So I was actually a junior high, high school art teacher, uh, fresh out of college and did that before I had launched into the shop mechanics stuff. Um, so yeah, I think we, we both have like that kind of creative mindset of like, not only a problem solving, but also just kind of thinking about the game, not necessarily from the traditional aspect. And so I definitely think the creativity comes, comes from that for sure. Well, coach Nick used to do second city, right? Improper. I think you did the, the sister, the second <laughs> city, which really comes through in the videos. When you do the segues into those ads for like seat geek, first of all, I've used those. So thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the, the code is b-ball. 
Yeah. <laughs> 20 bucks off your first purchase. Um, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I like in my journey, like um, Slumdog Millionaire, that, that movie where uh, he gets to, you know, uh, what's the, what's the, you want to be a millionaire TV show. And it, no one can believe he has all this amazing information and knowledge. But when you trace his whole crazy life, uh, everything puts together like, oh, that was really helpful for this. And this was really helpful for that. So I, I realized at this point in my life that like improv really helped with this. I was a te- I was a teacher. I taught art uh, as well in, in the high school level. Um, I was a you know I, I worked on films and com- and commercials for years and years. And I was also coaching uh, early on right out of college. So I had all these random things that were sort of didn't seem to connect. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait, all uh, every skill that I was able to pick up from those things while, while the time, it might've felt like I was just spinning my wheels and not getting anywhere ended up really, really helping me. I was writing screenplays as well, which has got, which is, which is what got me to LA. And so, you know, it, it, the most important thing I'm doing now is writing scripts for these videos. And that was, uh, you know, a lot of that training was going on for those years when I had first moved out here. Do you write the uh, script for Bebo Breakdown similar to a format for a very visual television show where you have like one column on the left is like uh, uh, the text that you want to read out and then on the right you have the visual or is it kind of just written just as I, 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 because I'm the one man band, I would have yeah. to do that obviously if I was having other people edit it for me and all that stuff. But, um, but no, I, I just write it out like a paragraph and I, cause I already know, and I had the clips are already, as I'm writing it, the clips are already in the timeline in order. So it's real easy to just lay it down, but time it slow mo if I need to, and then freeze frames and then boom, it's done. So both of you, uh, just I want to touch on that was you're as you're watching the games. Has you have you found that it's taken away a bit of the pleasure where you're watching, but also you're clipping things like okay, this is how it's going to fit here. Because I know for Coach Colin, for example, it's a bit more evergreen in the sense of he can kind of take his time with his videos. Uh, it's obviously a lot of him. Of uh, Coach Nick, you've said in the past that taking your face out of the video obviously makes it much faster to create the clips. So how do you find that that's affected your enjoyment of watching basketball? You want to jump in there, Colin? Yeah, I mean, so for me, it, I it hasn't really changed a whole lot, um, you know. And at this point, I'm like kind of pseudo retired <laughs> from the actual coaching and training, running more of the media stuff. Um, and so, you know, what it would it kind of what I noticed was probably the biggest piece was like the content hamster wheel, right? Like you kind of talked about earlier. And so, you know, for us, and I think Nick's uh, like a lot of the same way is one of the reasons why we grew really fast at shop mechanics was like our speed to be able to produce things. So it'd be like, Hey, this, you know, super viral move would happen on a Tuesday night game. And by Thursday we could have a video out about it while it was still kind of hot, while it was still kind of fresh, you know, from a tutorial breakdown standpoint. And so, you know, being able to have that is definitely, it's cool. Like at no other point in history, you know, could you essentially like produce something of a high quality that fast after it actually happened on a broadcast? Um, but it's also kind of a, a curse at the same time, I think. So I'm sure Nick feels the same thing where it's like, oh, hey, my daughter's birthday was tomorrow, but I should probably get this video out and focus on it for the next, you know, 24 hours or whatever it is. So it's definitely one of those things where uh, it does change your viewpoint of the game, right? You know, where you're kind of like looking at these different chunks of these different actions or, you know, Nick probably storylines, right? As far as like what, would make for a great video that not only would, you know, and what we try to do at shot mechanics a lot is not only would be like cool and get clicks and eyeballs, but also be educational at the same set. So you're kind of like, you know, constantly trying to figure out what melts or melts those two worlds together more or less. Yeah. I I think for me, I watch, we'll do like live watch parties 
those are kind of tough because everyone is watching it. I'm broadcasting. So it's almost like the game's over and I, I have no idea what just happened because, you know, I'm not taking notes. I'm not on Twitter doing my little, you know, my little uh, videos that I, I do that will help me remember what's happened in that show or in that video or in that game, excuse me. Um, but I, I have noticed that when I've made a prediction about a certain team winning a certain series, like in the playoffs, for instance, I some I tend to start cheering for them a little bit more, I guess. Right. I obviously don't want to be proven wrong. Um, so I've noticed that recently has been the thing. Like, I'll just tell you, the Celtics and the Heat, like, you know, it was so completely clear to me the Celtics were going to win that series based on all the evidence we'd had through four games. And yet it, it, it wasn't coming to fruition that way. And I found myself, like, getting more and more frustrated in game six and in game seven. Um, and so anyway, uh, so that, those are the times that I feel like I actually get, you know, uh, some allegiance or some excitement about the game. Other than that, I'm just, yeah, hyper-focused, looking for interesting things I can point out, uh, on Twitter and then interact that way, which is always, you know, I quote unquote fun, I suppose might not be the right word, but it's, um, it feeds whatever my, you know, the brain needs at the time. Outside of those specific calls that might bias you a little bit, I know you kind of grew up in the Chicago area. Uh, are you a Bulls fan still or anything of that nature and yourself calling? Well, it's, for me, I was a Bulls fan from 1979 to 1999, you know, okay. and then I, the glory I kinda, years. Yeah. It, but second. in the sense that like, I'm not really a fan of a logo. I'm, I'm a fan of the players. I gravitate okay. towards who they are and their stories and how they work together. So, you know, there are other teams or other players that I could kind of like really admire or be a fan of quote unquote, by the way they play, but it, it's never been a thing where, you know, maybe somewhere deep in the recesses of my brain, I, I like my Cubs fandom still exists where I'll, I will, you know, get excited about that a little bit. I grew up right down the street from Ridley Field. But um, but other than that, I, I really, yeah, I don't think I have any more of an allegiance anymore. It's just to like the the storylines and the players themselves. How about yourself, yeah. Coach Colin? Yeah, so I grew up in Washington State, so I was a big Sonics fan growing up. Uh, you know, Peyton Kemp years were like definitely around my like transformative. <laughs> as, so you guys were youth. on the other sides in '96, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know, unfortunately, the Sonics got got stolen from us. Uh, so <laughs> you know, I've since like um, pretty much banned that team from my memory, and you know, I'm not a Thunder fan uh, whatsoever. So the the moment they left Seattle, they were dead to me. Um, but I was also a big Kings fan growing up. You know. Jason Williams came around and being, you know, a white kid who, you know, was like wanting to be a part of the culture and a part of the game. As soon as Jason Williams came on the scene, I was like, I'm a Kings fan. And then he left, but then I was like, all right, well, I can't be bandwagoning and jumping teams all the time. So then I rode with the Kings for a long time. Uh, and you know, now much like Nick just said, it's more so kind of like players, you know, uh, and kind of who I enjoy watching. I'm a Washington state university alum. So I'm a huge Clay Thompson fan from the yeah. same university there. And then obviously as a shooting coach, you know, gotta love, uh, Steph and, and that crew. So I tend to like shade towards the warriors as far as, you know, who I root for just cause I like the brand of basketball and as a shooting coach, uh, I always like to say Clay and, and, uh, Steph put a roof over my my head for you know about five years um and uh you know other than that though then now i just kind of root for the the athletes that we have on our roster players media group absolutely so i think uh this the step part is a, a perfect segue because i want to i'm sure you guys are super analytic and analytical and you know your top your top hits so uh coach nick you're on the left here these are the top five uh from uh, your youtube channel they might not be perfectly accurate this is a third party me and okay. uh and then Coach Colin, you're on the right there. So uh, look at the – first of all, I know you, the, the thumbnails are so important. These are some killer thumbnails. <laughs> but uh, So for the listeners, I was going to say the three of the top ten combined, they all involve Steph Curry. 
And uh, obviously the reason I want to bring it up is uh, I want to allow the platform for both of you to crush on Steph Curry because I've heard it before. And uh, I am just, I love greatness in any field, right? Like I love Francis Ford Coppola as a director. I love Daniel Daniel Day-Lewis as an actor. And you can be this in any field, right? You can be this as a mathematician. Steph, is anybody better at a, an art that Steph Curry is at shooting versus the average? Because in my mind, I don't think it's uh, like, if I were to throw that question out there, if you're just thinking outside of basketball, is anybody better at one thing in their chosen craft than Steph Curry is uh, for shooting in his craft? Well, it's interesting because we actually have n- numbers to measure that yes. where we can't <laughs> yeah. really, you know, you can't measure Francis Ford Coppola's, you know, how much better <laughs> is he than, you know, some average director in Hollywood. But, um, you know, I, 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 here's the thing. I mean, I, I've been saying for a long time, we're going to have six or seven Steph Curry's five years from now, right? The kids who were nine and 10 watching Steph when he first started, they're now going to be 20, 21, 22 entering the league. Um, so I think it's only a matter of time until, you know, we, we get that. Now, what makes him so special that he had no one to really model himself off after that well either, unless you want to go way back to like Pistol Pete um, or maybe even like Jerry West, right? Like, so we had a few of those kind of guys, but never really that level and shooting that many threes. So, um, so yeah, I think maybe in terms of impact overall in the game and people are arguing right now where he, you know, what here ranks in the top 10 or top 20. Uh, I think that you end up, you know, aside from like the actual skill level he has on the floor, that way of changing the game and how he energized the NBA again is on par with like, I think what like, you know, magic and bird did in 1980 coming in uh, and reawakening a big fan base. So you have to give them a lot of extra props for that. So yeah, that gets him pretty high above the average. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. And I think, you know, kind of the biggest piece to it, like Nick mentioned, was like just kind of the way he played the game and plays the game kind of changed the whole perspective of how the game could be played. Right. And so, you know, uh, the, you know, younger generation, there's this huge wave of Steph Curry fans that see somebody who's slightly smaller than the rest of the players in the league, you know, kind of on average and maybe isn't, you know, the most explosive person who's doing, you know, between the leg dunks and that sort of stuff, but can still completely dominate and shift and change a game in a bunch of different ways, I think is the thing that makes it kind of the most exciting, the most impactful for me. I mean, there's really not many other players in the history of the game that can completely change an offensive possession, whether they touch the ball or not. Right. You know, so whether it's other guys getting wide open layups or back cuts or whatever it is, just the gravity at which he moves around the court is something that, you know, I don't know if we'll see necessarily in the future quite like him um, because I think he has kind of that first person up uh, kind of shine to it where essentially he's kind of put even at a higher level, you know, from a defensive attention standpoint, but like Nick mentioned, I mean, you know, a lot of coaches generally are kind of like old school, right? They don't like change. They like to kind of dig their heels in and, and are afraid of it. Whereas like, I truly think that the next generations are going to be even better, right? And like, like Nick mentioned, there's going to be a bunch of kids who grew up watching Steph Curry, who trained like Steph Curry, who understand the concepts like Steph Curry. Um, so just kind of, you know, the, we might get more Steph Curry's, but they might be six, seven or six, six rather than, you know, six, three or something like that. So, uh, you know, overall, I think he's just been fantastic for the game. I think, you know, another really kind of underrated aspect of, to him is that he's been a fantastic kind of leader and mentor for the game. Um, you know, number one, how to be a great teammate. Number two, how to work hard and really kind of, you know, uh, really focus on the skill development off the court that needs to happen to be successful. Um, I also think it's great how he's a, he's a fantastic father and a role model off the floor. Um, and even like, I've been lucky enough to have a couple dinners with him. He didn't invest in us. So that was unfortunate, but, 
Um, super nice dude, like probably the nicest guy you could possibly meet. You know, he's walking out of the restaurant, shaking hands with people, taking pictures, just seems like a legitimately awesome human being. And it's, you know, cool that he can also be a great basketball player at the same time. For sure. I love that. Yeah, I mean, even in one of the videos that you showed uh, of mine on that last screenshot, um, you know, I, I'm lucky enough that I can, um, you know, hang around the, the Warriors practices and get that kind of footage because I, I was like under the baskets. You can finally see Steph from all different angles. I, well, all different shots on the floor, but from underneath the baskets, you can really see everything versus most of the time, you know, you're from behind or whatever. And uh, and it's funny because the coaching staff doesn't always want me to even talk to him much. They're so worried that I'm going to ask him a question that's going to like get him thinking about what he's doing and then maybe start missing, which is virtually impossible. I don't think you can ask him anything, but by the way, I'm not even sure he thinks a lot about it in a way he's got incredible trainers that run him through the stuff, but I think he's so instinctive and reactive and, but he's always very nice. And he always like kind of maybe gives me a slight smirk when he sees me knowing that like, I'm the guy who's going to ask him like, like, like I, one question was like, Hey, do you intentionally keep your arms bent? as you're catching the ball versus like reaching out, which is what a lot of players might do and then have to bring it back in and then shoot it. And he's like, I don't know. He literally, I don't think <laughs> he thought about it, you know, but, but what he, but he had, what he had was through the process of the thousands and millions of shots he's taken. I think he realized, and that's another thing like what Colin and I would do with the, the details of his shot is, is, you know, you have your arms already kind of bent into that, into that shape uh, of your shot while you're catching it. So you don't need to add another movement to that. Um, certainly I use that in my, when I'm coaching now and it like people, People look at me like I'm some sort of wizard when I do that because they're like, wait, this is so much better. And I'm like, yeah, I just saw it step do it once or every time. I loved how you uh, you mentioned the coaches were uh, a little bit hesitant to have you kind of break his his flow because that's clearly what he's in. The the Have you both read uh, or either read the book uh, Levels of the Game about tennis? Uh, it's about yes. Arthur Ashman. So, uh, so Colin, I, I might be butchering it, but my big takeaway from the book was that there's just this another level that you can reach as an athlete, right? Where... Uh, you, you stop thinking about the game and these small things, like you said, where you start having doubt or you start, if you, if Steph Curry starts thinking, Oh, is my elbow like a little bit too far out or too far in, it will literally affect his ability to be that caliber of a player. Right. Mm. So the question I kind of had was what, it, what is one thing that like an average Joe like me does not realize about what makes Steph Curry so special? Is it like a, 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 a one does he load his legs a certain ways, uh, the way he looks at the rim or is it one special thing like that, that really stands out to you? Good question. You know, I think specifically when it comes to shooting instruction and shooting development, you know, our whole thing at shot mechanics and the, the reason why we were kind of, you know, uh, I was considered a, a renegade in the space for, you know, a decade was, you know, my kind of personal philosophy was always that it's not like one specific thing. Right. And so you can be a great shooter with a handful of different mechanics, a handful of different techniques, you know, sure. There's five to 10 of them that kind of, you know, pop up a a lot and you can try to optimize. Um, But for most of the time, you know, we really kind of looked at everything as like the power of an individual, right. We're all different sizes. We're all different athleticisms. We have different arm lengths, different hand sizes, different torso lengths, right. There's kind of all these variables that go into like, you know, kind of this very body biomechanical movement. And so there's certain things that Steph does that are more optimized that if most people did at least one of them, they probably drastically increase their shooting percentage. What that one thing is probably depends on the person. Right. Um, so from Steph, you know, I think the thing that's kind of the most interesting about him specifically was there's kind of two myths. And I think Nick will probably, uh, you know, back me on this one. There's kind of two main myths that we've all heard shooting the basketball growing up that Steph does the opposite of number one would be that he tilts his feet slightly when he shoots off to the left. 
rather than being squared towards the hoop. And number two, that he loads the ball low. Some people call it a dip. Some people call it a, you know, kind of a lower set point, whatever it is. Um, but he essentially brings the ball down kind of below his waist rather than keeping it high up on a shelf. Those two things I would say are the main ones that probably we've all heard, you know, from camps and clinics from the time we were, you know, in third grade that we shouldn't do, which actually, you know, from a body biomechanics standpoint, actually play into his jump shot. So those are probably the two I would, I would jump out of the gate with. Yeah. And I'll just add to that. Uh, I think what he is uh, optimized is because remember we can see him shoot in a hundred different permutations of the mechanics too, depending on, you know, the situation. But uh, to me, I think it's the, the rhythm that he has. And the, mm. when I say rhythm, I'm I always talking about the synchronization of the arm swing up to the triple extension of the legs, uh, the ankles, knees, and hips uh, extending up into the jump, where when I was growing up, they had no conception at all of what that timing really was, except for I learned as you're bending your knees down, your arms are coming up, and that would lead to a two-motion shot like we used to see all those guys do. And what Steph has figured out is that he, you know, the very simplest version of this is that he bends his knees before the arm swing starts going up so that then as his knees are straightening out, his arms can go in one motion straight up and through the shot, very low set point, which is another one of those frustrating things where you used to torture kids saying that you need a set point above your eyebrow. And I remember having a kid uh, when I first started, Oh, I know what happened. I, I, I first started coaching at the high school as a head coach in 2010. I went to a Lakers practice when Steve Nash had just gotten there. And I had a, I had a lights out shooter, like best shooter in the Valley. And he shot, you know, with the ball, just like Nash. And I was like, if you want to start on varsity, you're going to have to have that higher. And I go and see Nash and I'm standing 10 feet away from him, watching him shoot jumper after jumper, like a little kid. And I'm like, how can I possibly tell my guy that he can't do that when here's Steve Nash, best shooter of this generation, does it and at my height and can get it off against these big guys. So um, that that all those things that are connected uh, uh, to to sort of what Seth has been proven or pr- disproven from all the other notions that we had had all these years. Thank God for HD. Thank God for the ability to record <laughs> it and go frame by frame. I think that's the big yeah. thing. We, didn't, we couldn't go frame by frame and really study this until whenever it was in the 2000s. So uh, anyway, so it's that it's that rhythm that I think he is unlocked, which gets you all the way to 40 feet at, you know, 50 percent or whatever you shoot 40 some percent from that far. I think somebody yeah, described it as totally intramuscular agree. coordination. That's like if if, uh, if an athlete like LeBron James has the most explosive jump and that is considered an athletic skill, intramuscular coordination should also be considered in that vein, right? For sure. I mean, it's one of those things where like, you know, uh, the coordination aspect of it, like Nick mentioned, or the rhythm, I mean, that's like a huge piece that like, I mean, when was, you know, did any of us go to a shooting camp growing up and anybody talked about rhythm? No. Did anybody talk about the timing of the basketball and your hips moving and when your arms are going and your legs are going? No. Like it was basically just kind of like, you know, Hey, we got to get to beef, right. We got to get on balance and we got to sit our butt down with the ball up and that's how everybody (laughs) shoots. Right. Um, and so, you know, I don't know, Steph's really interesting. He's really interesting case study in the whole piece because he doesn't seem to be as self-aware about his mechanics as you would think maybe that somebody who's kind of like broken the mold would be right. It's almost like, uh, he kind of did what his body naturally wanted to do best, rep that out, trained it. And it happened to be what body biomechanically works the best. And because of that, it ended up kind of changing the game. But like, I don't, I, you know, everything I've ever seen and the conversations I've had with them and, and whatnot, I've, it doesn't ever seem like he was like, yeah, I knew that I needed to load the ball lower because it would generate more up force and it would give me better rhythm and lift or whatever. You know, it was just kind of like, I think that's just what felt most comfortable and got him the best results and nobody screwed with it. <laughs> so he ended up, you know, the best shooter of all time. 
Well, here's what's funny, because he also he like at some points he talks about having to raise his, re- his set point before the release of one summer. And they tortured him with that. He, he didn't raise it like he, it's still like a little kid in front of his face, in front of his face or in front of his eye. Right. Like it's weird. He, he also talked about how he seriously aims at the rim, which he, he aims at the rim, but he'll follow the ball after the release. And so people want to say they, there's a soundbite of him saying, you know, stare at the rim. But that's not what he does. And I, I think at this point, he I've asked him, he knows he follows the ball with his eyes most of the time, although he does doesn't do it every time and it drives me nuts because a guy like clay will and clay knows his mechanics so you can ask him and he'll tell you i think every, every little piece of the mechanics and he understands that but um that's what's so wonderful about shooting like you know as a snowflake you know, everyone has their own version and they all exist in a you know they, they can work um that's why the more i've learned about shooting like the less i actually do believe it or not i used to yeah, torture yeah. players i don't know if you did this column but i used to like be yanking on on their wrists and pulling on their on their elbows to try and get like clay thompson and uh, I've called players after years later and apologized <laughs> for doing that to them because I couldn't believe it was like um, I always reference this. You guys are probably too young to remember Star Trek four when they come back from uh, to, to, you know, this time or it's the, it's the 90s or late 80s in the, Amer- in, in the U.S. And, and uh, Bones burst into the operating room because Chekhov got, in, you know, hurt his brain. They have to do a repair. And he sees him about to drill into his brain to like relieve pressure. And he's like, is this the dark ages? Are you going to start using leeches? <laughs> And uh, that's how I feel now thinking about what we were doing for all those years trying to teach this game. Is that yeah. go ahead, coach. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I definitely, you know, I am a little younger than Nick. And so I feel fortunate because like, you know, let's say you've coached in the industry for, you know, 30 years and you've been teaching people to shoot a certain way for 30 years. And then all of a sudden new information comes to light. And you have to like completely revert back and be like, hold on. I've been doing the possibly the wrong thing for hundreds and thousands of kids over the last 30 years. Uh, that's a tough pill to swallow. And I think it's why, you know, I got a lot of hate from a lot of people. I'm sure Nick got a lot of hate from a lot of people um, in kind of the industry. And it's because this idea of like, hold on, maybe I haven't been doing the best job I possibly could have. Um is tough. And so luckily for me, you know, I'd only coached for maybe like a year and a half before I started to kind of get into these concepts. Um, and mine came just kind of from my own personal journey. I was a lights out shooter growing up, got to varsity basketball in high school. The coach started tinkering with the shot. Like Nick said, Hey, got to get the set point up. Cause you're not gonna be able to get off. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, ended up struggling worse and worse and worse every year of high school. And then I got out of high school, went to college and then became a great shooter again. So it was like this weird, like blackout period of my life where I wasn't that great of a shooter, um, you know, through hard work and, and that sort of stuff. I was still above average, but um, it was just a really interesting path to get to of like, well, hold on a second. Why did I get worse when I changed all this sort of stuff? And then, you know, like Nick said, I mean, having the ability to have HD video, slow motion, frame by frame, it'd be essentially, I always like to say, it's like, if you got to watch Leonardo da Vinci, paint one of his great masterpiece works of art, but you also had footage of it. You also could go back through and, you know, freeze it frame by frame. How's he holding the paintbrush? What's the paint stroke look like? Blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's a completely different ballgame. So, you know, we kind of got fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. I love that. I love that so much. And, uh, well, uh, speaking of specific skills, uh, coach Colin, it's not just shooting that you've broken down. These are your original videos. So these were the ones. Yeah. So these were the ones you recorded, right? Uh, when you had shotmechanics.com. Before YouTube, yep. uh, well, let me actually uh, let me pull one up here if I got it, and uh, I'll have a uh, have Coach Nick critique your dream shake. So, uh, yeah, let's see if it's even good. Like this so for the be, listeners, here's the first shot mechanics video. So is oh, this a, uh, this is in Idaho, uh, where you live is. now? Is that correct? 
Notice Idaho. It's a tiny little high school out in like rural Idaho uh, amongst the potato and onion fields. Um, and there's like 150 kids, grade seven through 12. <laughs> so coach, so uh, coach Colin here showing a little dream shake. Nick, uh, coach Nick, what were we seeing here? Is that, is that pretty good? So, yeah, well, here's the thing. I, I did one about Hakeem because I don't even sure that Hakeem knew what he was doing either. But you see what Colin does, which is right, is, and I've been developing a whole series on the post moves of this, is he lifts both feet in the air as he's gathering the ball. It's not, a, it's, it's quick, it's low, but I think that's the secret where you can now use ground reaction forces and you land on those both feet. You can use either one as a pivot. And that's what uh, Hakeem used to do, dribble, dribble. And in, in the air, he would lift both feet and then kind of, you know, jump back backwards into the man and then land both feet together. And then he can do all the shake you like because you don't know which foot's the pivot. Um, so, yeah, that, that Colin is doing it right there. And that's that's the thing where I'm when I'm always trying to watch Hakeem when he works with all the other NBA players he's had recently. Like, I don't see him talking about that. And I don't know if he has. I did one with Joey Burton, not, well, again, who, what is time two years ago? And he showed some Kobe Gallup stuff. And I was like, we built off of that. Too, where it was like, uh, you know, did did Kobe just kind of figure it out? Because I can tell you, no youth coaches, you know, at some point up until one very recently would have been teaching like gallops and lifting both feet like that. You know what I mean? This wasn't in the curriculum uh, for most coaches, so that it's really cool to see from even back then. You, you did say on a previous podcast that both feet in the air. If you were to say like one thing, because there's so many applicabilities in terms of like splitting. Uh, changing the pivot feet and even on defense is like kind of the code to it's the secret. Wait, so you, I, you, I, I can't believe this. You've listened to like probably everything I've ever done. That's how are you, how do you I, know? I go them? deep. Uh, I actually haven't had a chance to do these uh, uh, interviews in a while because our podcast is usually with myself, Bilal and Jack, but uh, well, I'll do one for you uh, coach. This is, this is going back is uh, I cannot believe that you do not have these full videos up. So these were your earliest videos you had. So for the listeners, yeah, years. Uh, yeah these are, uh, Coach Nick interviewed Tex Winners, uh, who did the triangle offense for the Chicago Bulls famously, and then Dean Smith, a former coach for North Carolina, Michael Jordan's college yeah. coach. Uh, I couldn't find the full videos there. I know these were early days. Uh, did you not go forward with that series? And uh, I think uh, I think the listeners would love to get the full full package. Yeah, well, the, the whole thing started before B-Ball Breakdown. You know, I filmed those before YouTube, I think, existed, or right around the time maybe when it first started. Um, I mean, literally lugging the, you know, equipment around. Cause you know, I could do that with an iPhone now. Right. And, and yeah. the, in any lights, but I, I had to drag all this stuff around, but, uh, in the beginning, uh, b-ball breakdown was going to be probably like, uh, like a Ken Burns style documentary on the history of basketball. Amazing. And I had, let's see, I had, okay. I started high, I was a high school t- uh, coach uh, in the Valley in LA, right when Phil and Tex got hired to coach the Lakers. And I had grown up in Chicago. I knew known the triangles by watching it all those years in the stands and just sort of having a, some sense of it. But um, the head coach at the time was looking for something new. He was running Bobby Knight's motion offense. It was so much of this extra, so much wasted movement and, you know, and energy. So he was looking for something. I said, you should try looking the triangle. And he's like, ah, then Michael Jordan just scores whenever he wants to. They don't really do anything. Meanwhile, uh, you know, he watches the Lakers game from the, the preseason, right? And then they're running the strict triangle. He hadn't probably ever really watched it. Cause remember in 1999, you know, it wasn't so easy to watch East coast games if you were on the West coast. Right. Yeah, so he's league pass replays. <laughs> yeah, like, like, here's the thing. 
thing. Like I, Gary Payton wasn't that impressive to me. I didn't really know him much besides what I saw in the finals in 96. Right. But apparently he was really great, uh, <laughs> but uh, great enough to get in the hall of fame. So, but, but the, the, to give it, to make a shorter version of the story. Um, he, he, he's in love with it. He can't believe the reverse action, all the movement. This is great. This is what I've been looking for. We go to the summer league for the NBA, which was back then was in long beach at the pyramid. We were wearing our coaches jerseys. We have a clipboard. So we look more official and we try and walk down on the floor, which by the way, anybody could have, there was no security at all. I grabbed Tex who's walking by. And then next thing you know, like he, I'm going to his house in, in Oregon and we're hanging out. I, I actually, here's what I have. You haven't That's seen. Amazing. I got him and Herb Brown. So Larry, Larry Brown's brother, Herb is another really long time, you know, coach in the NBA as an assistant. And he was a head coach, I think for a, a minute, uh, I got both of them together and we interviewed them and comparing their, their, their uh, childhoods growing up with basketball, one on the East coast with Herb Brown and then on the West coast with Tex winner. Uh, and that's another thing I got to dig out that tape and, and, and transfer and, and release. So I had, I started getting all these, all these older coaches who were like, you know, not going to be alive for much longer. Tex winner. Uh, I got Bill Guthridge as well. Um, and then that got me to Dean Smith. So I ran to Chapel Hill. That might be the last interview Dean Smith did, honestly, because he got sick not long after that. Uh, but he was really sharp. We talked about the history of basketball. We talked about him playing. We talked about the racial component of how he had to break a lot of barriers as a coach early on in Quick Carolina. Um, gosh, I, thank you for bringing that up because I'm now excited. I have to find it. And as oh we're moving my. off season, dig it out. You got to dig, dig it, it up. up. Well, so I have more. I have Pete Newell. I got at least two, a couple hours of Pete Newell. And again, toward the end of his life as well. And a really funny story. I, I'm friends with Greg Newell in a random way through a, you know, a, a high school out here at a, at a tournament. And uh, I just randomly walked out to, to get a fresh, some fresh air at the tournament. He's just sitting there smoking a cigarette. I'm like, Hey, I'm, I'm Nick Halsman. He goes, Oh, I'm Greg Newell. I'm like, well, that's a pretty good name to have if you're into basketball. And then <laughs> next thing you know, it's actually Pete's son. So, uh, and he didn't know I had done that interview with his father at his father at passed by that point and so it was a really nice thing for him to, to like to see his father like alive again and in, in a way he had never heard him talk about it before so the the, the, the bottom cool. line for all this though is i want to say for coaches is that I think the best way to become a really good coach is to study the history and study that old footage and look at how the evolution of the game has has moved because i think you, you have a more intrinsic understanding of uh the x's and o's that way i love that i uh i love how you said ken burns of uh a basketball Ken Burns obviously did the Vietnam War documentary. I watched it with my parents. It was like pretty intense. And uh, yeah. I've watched all his other history stuff. Um, the, the question, the reason why I wanted to touch on Ken Burns, obviously storytelling narrative, both of you involved in media, spent a decade and have different ventures now, very specifically in media. So the reason uh, I bring this up for Michael Jordan as the greatest player of all time, which I believe, and I think what makes his argument impenetrable is the narrative part It's the six for six, uh, never lost in the final. So I like to throw it to you is like, is that myth so unbeatable that he will just never be ungoated? It's like, there's just no range of accomplishment that could ungoat six for six with the narrative of coming back. And this is from a purely narrative loving individual. You know, that's a good question. I'll take a stab at it first here, Nick. So my thought is like, it's probably going to be pretty hard for anybody to kind of unseat that. I, I do think, you know, there are going to be people who are possibly more skilled, more talented, uh, you know, just by the way that skill developments come by the way that taking care of your bodies come right. Even if you look at LeBron, just like the number of minutes and games and miles he's been able to put on his body and still stay 
relatively healthy throughout the whole thing is just an incredible feat in and of itself. So I think there's somebody who's going to get more shots or more cracks at the plate, um, you know, kind of, so to speak. The thing that's interesting about uh, the Jordan piece specifically is that, you know, it, it was kind of the two eras, right. And who knows what happened, what would happen during the baseball era. And so I think that kind of mystique and people almost, I think a lot of people kind of just chalk those two years that he was gone up to him being great. And he would have won anyways, where there were some really, really good teams around the league in those two years. So, you know, would he be eight? No, probably not. I don't think, you know, the Houston teams are pretty darn good through there as well as a couple other. Um, but I think from a narrative perspective, it's going to be hard to top, especially just because the amount of talent in the game is so uh, I would say, I would say there's a lot more talent just in general. And then also you add the variance of the three point shot and how many people are shooting threes and that sort of stuff. I think it's going to be harder for somebody to win that many just because there's more kind of moving targets. So I think, right. I think it's going to be difficult. Yeah. I, I think that it's the mindset though. We haven't really encountered someone who was both like the best defender and the best offensive player. This whole notion yeah. of two way player is kind of ridiculous now. Um, but like here was a guy who was so ferocious on both ends, played 40 minutes a night. Um, and, and, you know, you wouldn't have had more than like a half of him being off, uh, you know, and missing shots or not scoring <laughs> it normally, you'd know, he'd come out in that second half and just destroy you or God forbid you'd say anything to him. <laughs> that was some sort of trap talk would invariably end up being embarrassing if not right away then he'll get you in the next one so we really haven't had that i mean the league has kind of turned into a bit of a you know guys are more friendly with each other and all that stuff which is whatever um and it's not to say that you know michael wasn't friendly and i think he probably used that to his advantage against some of those guys like barkley um but pound for pound like it's just the weight of his um, impact. It, it was so great on both sides of the floor. I haven't seen that. I haven't seen it from LeBron. Listen, you have to split in minute hairs here. And, you know, like LeBron has had some moments in the finals that have made you scratch your head. And Michael, it never did really. So it's like, I, if I have to pick between those two, I, I got to pick Michael, but it, you know, LeBron's is going to be like the one B uh, of that discussion, you know, until some, maybe somebody else comes along, but um, having grown up in Chicago, having gone to all the games at home, uh, from 85 on uh, either I'm biased or I'm the kind of guy who actually got the chance to see all of it and know, uh, and, and, and is, is better informed than others. So I have, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen anyone come along who's matched all those boxes and checked right. all those boxes that he's done. Actually an interesting case study of that was when Brady won seven, because he'd already, he'd obviously lost a couple in the Super Bowl or three and uh, people were, you know, the argument basically he had said after he won five, he's like, I'm only chasing Michael Jordan now, right? He's like, I'm no longer chasing somebody in the NFL. I'm chasing American team sports. It's Michael Jordan. And then he goes on and wins seven. And then basically the, now the argument becomes is seven better than the six. And the argument becomes six for six. Right. So like, I saw that, like, you know, what? I think this, this six is going to hold tight. I think, I think Jordan's going to be able to hold this six for six. Pretty, yeah, yeah for it's sure. pretty, it's pretty impressive. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. Um, yeah, the football wants stuff too because it's like eleven players, and you know. But I, I listen. I, I'm not. I can't talk about football. I haven't watched football really for you know sure. since college. So, <laughs> well, I wanted a, a, a small pivot from a, a basketball specifically to more the YouTube. Uh, YouTube has uh, Coach Colin. I've heard you uh, talk about how much YouTube has changed since you started, and you mentioned that you're a bit more autopilot YouTube. But a lot of your content is evergreen, so that stuff's going to be searched forever. Coach Nick's probably, I think, probably fifty fifty. Just based on, I'm obviously you're doing a lot of real time stuff, but also a lot of uh, you know, historical related stuff. Um, what, how has the platform changed in the past decade? 
And the second question to that is, can you become a creator? What are the skills necessary in today's YouTube world uh, versus it, uh, 10 years ago? That's a good question. Nick, you want to go first or you want me to? Uh, well, I was just talking way too much. So why don't you jump in there? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, I think YouTube's changed a lot. Um, you know, and I think specifically about, eh, about two years ago, they had an algorithm change that at least on my end from an education perspective was not a great change where they kind of started pivoting away from it being, you know, like the number two search engine in the world and really kind of like YouTube was a place where some of it was entertainment, some of it was educational, some of it was hey, my lawnmower is broken. I'm just trying to figure out how to fix it to really kind of leaning into the uh, entertainment side of the platform, right? So really kind of optimizing for watch time, uh, you know, platform sessions, all that sort of good stuff where, you know, basically they're trying to keep you on platform for as long as possible. Doing what we did at Shop Mechanics was kind of like the worst possible business to be in with YouTube when they switched because, you know, as a coach and as a trainer, if somebody comes looking for the solution to a problem, right? Hey, how do I shoot better? How do I dribble better? Whatever it is. Um, and they watch one of your videos, they get the answer and then they leave to the gym to go practice it. It's kind of not what YouTube wants now, right? So I'd say that that's probably like the biggest change where they want things that are more topical, things that are more entertainment based with longer watch times and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, now as a creator, you find yourself, hey, I could, I could very easily teach something in two and a half minutes, but now I'm trying to figure out how to make it like six and a half minutes. Um, so I think from an education perspective, it's changed a lot and honestly, not as good as it used to be from, from kind of that educational side of the aisle. Um, from the entertainment side of the aisle, it's taken off and there's still a lot of greatest great stuff to do with it. Um, but you know, because shot mechanics was very much skill development related, um, you know, it's definitely, it's, it's one of those things that you kind of just got to change and adapt with that being said, you know, I mean, we still do just over a million views a month on average on kind of autopilot evergreen, because there's always people who are still kind of searching that sort of stuff and wanting to learn about basketball and basketball training. Um, I've actually very recently had a very interesting switch in my analytics. I checked them last week for like the first time in probably five or six months. And for the first time ever, the U.S. is not my number one uh, demographic for viewership. So it's actually the Philippines now, which is super interesting because it used to be the Philippines was maybe like three or four somewhere in there, um, you know, big basketball fans over there. But now they've kind of jumped the U.S. in viewership as far as like the evergreen content goes. So it's been pretty interesting to see how that shapes up. And who knows, maybe we'll see kind of a boom of, you know, Philippine NBA players in the next like five to 10 years because it's, it's kind of taken the country over by storm. <laughs> My wife's Filipina and uh, I've been in Manila a lot. They, they definitely love hoops. <laughs> they love their hoops, man. It's crazy. No, they're, they're more in love with the NBA than we are. Yeah. Yeah, probably on a per capita because they don't have the other competing sports, right? They're just like, it's all NBA. Yeah, and, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And I got a buddy who's like a, uh, you know, a Nightwing, uh, the shoe reviewer guy. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. Sure. So he was telling me a funny story. One time he went to Manila for some like kind of sneaker convention or whatever. And, and his handler guy was like, Hey, so we'll pick you up at this time. We'll take you to the convention center. And he was like, ah, it's cool. I'll walk. It's just like a couple blocks. And the guy was like, you sure? And he was like, yeah, yeah, I'll walk. No big deal. He was like, all right, cool. And at the time he maybe had like 200,000 YouTube subscribers or something like that. Um, and so he goes outside and just starts getting like mobbed by people. And there's this like huge group of people that are like following him through the streets. Uh, and then he gets to the convention center and gets mobbed there. And he ends up having to get like, uh, you know, essentially escorted out by security. So the Philippines, they love their hoops culture <laughs> just in general. Yeah. 100%. You know, that's funny. Cause my buddy is Tim Cohn, who is like the Phil Jackson, of the Philippines, the PBA. 
Oh, and, yeah. um, and like I'm, I'm, a huge chunk of my audience is from the Philippines. Okay. And uh, and he's he's described what you just described. If that would happen, if I were to get there and walk around as well. Uh, and I'm like, yeah. oh, OK, let, let, let's do that. So I've been I've been trying to get to the Philippines <laughs> for a long time and do a clinic or something. I, you know, it's it's hard. It's far away. But um, I'm, one of these days is going to happen. And I and I do sense that, you know, uh, that, that, you know, there's a lot of um, a lot of fans, uh, uh, certainly the NBA there, too, who are really so passionate about it. So it's, it would be amazing. Yeah. I, I coach, yes. Nick, how about yourself? How, how have you seen a uh, YouTube change over the past decade? Well, it's interesting that you compared, you said the algorithm had changed a couple of years ago. Cause for me, something had changed right around when the bubble happened, at least as far mm. as interest in the NBA. So um, I started dealing with a lot of trouble trying to figure out how to get more people to watch the videos. It, it, like I used to have sort of a 45 degree growth year over year for five, six, seven years. And then it really hasn't happened that way since then. And I, and I, I still kind of maybe like recovering, I suppose, from that, um, you know, clearly there was a lack of interest in the NBA, like their ratings were going down. Uh, the game wasn't being played the way they wanted to. And I was struggling to figure out like, how are we supposed to make this work now? You know, that said, I'm, I'm making like more money than I've ever made. So I really get, can't complain per se. Um, but, uh, you know, when I'm looking at my trajectory on subs, I mean, I should be way past a million subs by now, but like something fundamentally changed. And I, you know, th there are people who always calling me, Hey, I'll, let me, I'll consult with you. Give me like $10,000 and I'll tell you to fix your thumbnails. I'm like, Oh, I don't know. If I need <laughs> Um, but, but I will say that there was the, the moment that it really, really took off. Cause I was kind of doing nicely. It was kind of growing. Uh, but at some point, uh, it was funny. There was a kid who, who called me and he goes, you know, I just graduated with a marketing degree and I love your stuff and I can help you. I'm like, all right, fine. So he goes, all right, you know, if we, uh, change, we, we move these ads that you're doing, uh, the integrations to the middle of the video. instead of the very beginning, you're losing 30% of your audience in the first 30 seconds because they're pissed because they already got an ad from YouTube and now you're giving them an ad. I'm like, okay. And it's, like, and then if you change the music and make it more epic and you change the titles and make them more, you know, uh, clicky, clickbaity, I guess. And then, you know, and you make your thumbnails a little different, uh, that'll really help. So I did all those things and one by one and, you know, God, no, we love it. it. That really was what caused a huge explosion. Uh, and, but that, and that was probably at yeah, 2015, 2016. So, um, clearly those are still some of the, the big commodities is the thumbnail, right. Which I had never really, that, the, the most watched video I ever have has the worst thumbnail of all time. It's like, actually, if it's a freeze frame from the video, I never, we didn't, I didn't do thumbnails for the longest time i wanted to get a freeze frame of the video because Narrative violation right here <laughs> yeah it really is not how can that possibly be good but like that was my number one watch video for years um you know just get people and, and i my, that was my downfall i didn't believe in the beginning for a long time that anybody would want to watch me on the court teaching any basketball you know i i got so stuck on like well they, they're here because the basketball for the nba footage i'm breaking it down that's what i want to see but like that one did so well. And I, I probably missed out on a big opportunity back. That was again, you know, 2010 or whatever that was, because I should have been, you know, if I were Colin, I would have made, you know, branched out into a whole bunch of different things. I would have been putting the, all the, um, the, the annotations on the screen to, to, to get them there. I, I didn't have that conception. It, it was early on, it, or so early on that it just didn't really work. And then by the time I kind of started to figure those things out, that video had gotten, you know, it gotten shoved down into the, uh, into the queue. So, uh, but anyway, uh, you know, the, the big, now is like the thumbnails got to be you know they have to catch your uh, eye the uh the first five words of the title have to really get get you as well um th that's probably the big thing these days right i even now yeah. i don't even know if uh, maybe hashtags are another thing colin right that you know in the description that people do now that somehow maybe seem to help shorts apparently are the big thing that youtube was pushing for a while um i tried those didn't really help me much 
but I've seen a couple of people get to like a million subscribers in like five months with shorts yeah. and you can't monetize those. So anyway, so, yeah. um, but that's, that was the big difference I think for me in the last, you know, several years. So Coach, is- I actually had a question specifically about the ad part is uh, because you have the pre-roll obviously that comes from YouTube and then you do the rev share on that, but you also do your owns within the videos that are cut in as we alluded to very seamlessly. Um, does YouTube have a view on those? Do they care? Uh, have you ever, have they ever reached out to you? About, uh, about the ads I put oh, in? About the organic ones that are just already pre-filmed and the ads not coming from them. No one's ever said it to me. Okay. It's the wild west, right? I just do it until someone says you can't do it. And, and, you know, when I was growing up uh, unauthorized use of this footage is copyright, whatever. Like I think back in the day, we thought cops would show up at your house and arrest you for doing that. And now what you realize is they'll just block it if they don't want you to do it right. or they'll claim it, which is what they do. And then and that's, that's fine. You know? Um, but, but no one's bothered me at all about those. And, you know, uh, I, I, I hope, hopefully they won't, they won't. <laughs> when, it's, it's funny when I was first starting, I would say like the number one question I would get from like other coaches, other people in the industry who were doing it, were always like, Hey, how do you, how do you get to use the NBA footage? I, yeah. like, I don't know. I just do <laughs> it kind of, kind of, it falls under, you know, kind of the, the creative fair use guidelines and laws and nobody said anything about it thus far. So that's, that's how I use it. Uh, you know, and it definitely, like Nick said, it is like, like when we first started, it was definitely the wild west of like, what are you allowed to do? What are you not allowed to do? I think one of the, you know, where we have both benefited uh, tremendously is that the NBA is kind of like a very self-aware league where they understand that like, you know, the star power is what drives things, the narrative and the storylines and the conflict between these stars is what drives things. And so as long as you're like promoting their stars in a positive light, you know, on the shot mechanic side, it's like, Hey, you know, you want to shoot like Steph Curry or on Nick's side, Hey, here's the breakdown, how, you know, Clay Thompson scored 60 or whatever it is. Um, most of the time, the NBA, NBA has been very open to people using their footage, using their IP, if it's for a promotional base, right? If you look at like uh, MLB or NFL, they were both kind of the opposite of that. And because of that, there's not very many MLB NFL creators up until like the last couple of years, because just now are they starting to understand like, oh, wait a second, if we build kind of this like fandom and these people who are essentially promoting our league for free uh, for us, it's, it's a good thing. Right. Um, and so I think we definitely got lucky that the NBA understood that much earlier than the other leagues. And because of it allowed us to do a lot of this creative stuff from the jump. For sure. I mean, it's the dumbest thing uh, to consider. They wouldn't have forgotten that realize the value of people sharing, the, sharing it, getting more people interested in the game and learning about the game. Yeah. And that's all good. It should be good. And uh, thank God the NBA was like that, you know, from the beginning. I, mean, I, I had like Noah Kozlov, who used to be work for the NBA, told me that like, he was in that meeting in 2006 or something when they said, uh, what are we going to do about this? And they're like, let's let people share it like that'll be a good thing. And it'll get people out there. You know, we'll get more fans. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing that with uh, F1 and the uh, Drive to Survive on Netflix, right? It took them yeah. three decades to figure it out, and that had to do with the change <laughs> of control, liberty taking over. But I had a, I know Coach Nick's got to run in a couple of minutes, so I just had two more questions, uh, uh, maybe three. Let's call it two. <laughs> so this kind of uh, goes back to uh, uh, something we covered before about Steph Curry. What, what skill does he have that the average person doesn't understand? This is a more broad question because this is probably my favorite uh, NBA quote ever from Brian Scalabrini. So for uh, Brian Scalabrini <laughs> said uh, to a, an amateur player that I'm closer to LeBron than you are to me because Brian Scalabrini, uh, for the people that don't know, he was maybe a 14th or 15th man uh, in the NBA. Uh, if there are 450 players in the NBA, he was definitely in the 400s uh, uh, in terms of how, uh, how good he was. But that also means he's 
one of the 400 best basketball players in the world, right? So, uh, I know Coach Colin, you you get asked a lot about, hey, let's see Coach plays all shooting. Let's see what, he's, what his actual skill set is. But the question is, what is it about the NBA, an average NBA player that the average viewer doesn't understand? Like, what is it that the quality they bring to the game that they just uh, 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 individual isn't involved at the sport at that level can uh, comprehend? Yeah, you know, I'd say there's there's two main things that people don't understand. Number one, everybody is way bigger than you think they are, at least for the most part. Every now and again, there's the outlier guys that are, that are shorter. Um, but even like, so a great example is one of my high school buddies was walking down New York one time and he was like, yo, that guy looks like a giant Steve Nash. And then somebody walked up and got Steve Nash's autograph. He's like, oh no, Steve Nash is actually just a really tall human being, right? I think he's like 6'3 or something like that, right? For like everyday population, Steve Nash is a very tall person. Uh, when he's running around the basketball court, he looks tiny. Um, and generally speaking, I'd say every player I've met with the, the exception of like a few are significantly taller than you think they're going to be when you meet them. Um, so first and foremost, the size of the people who are playing the game is incredible, right? You stand next to Deandre Jordan and he's like an alien, uh, like standing next to your average, like human being. Um, and so I'd say that's like kind of the first piece is like, everybody's a lot bigger. Everybody's a lot more athletic than you think they are. And then the second piece is everybody's a lot better than you think they are. Um, you know, so you see like the big kind of lumbering power forward centers and you think like, Oh, that's just a, you know, kind of like a non-athletic, you know, screener rebounder guy. But if you go to an NBA practice or you go to watch NBA warmups or whatever it is, you might watch a guy like Boban Maranovic hit 12 threes in a row or whatever it is, right? He doesn't shoot any threes. They don't run any plays for him. Uh, compared to your average, like guy who's playing YMCA pickup basketball or whatever it is, Boban would be the best shooter on the court every single time he steps onto the court, but nobody ever gets to know that in the, in the NBA game. So I think those are kind of the two biggest pieces is like you said, the 450th guy in the NBA is so good. He would hang 55 in your average, you know, kind of high school game. Um, and that's the thing that most fans don't understand. So I'm always, you know, we've always tried to be very kind of when, when we're critical of an athlete of their skill or whatever it is, um, we always try to be, you know, respectful of it because they're still way better than I'll ever be. <laughs> right. I think it's also speed. Um, yeah. Even though when you watch the NBA guys, a lot of times, like they end up playing at a speed that might be like slower than their, you know, hundred percent because they're so good that they can actually, you know, go 80% be under control. That's still, still their 80% is still faster than anything you ever played at. And so for you to think, Oh, the ball is swinging to me. I'm going to catch and shoot this on the wing. I'll give you an example. I used to play, I was a manager in Wisconsin. So my Michael Finley was on that team and you know, uh, a couple of bunch of guys that play in Europe. Right. So I play in pick, pick up games every so often with those guys. And I can remember, and I was good. I was fast and I could would shoot, but I can remember like coming uh, popping out to the corner. Uh, Finley's like at the, you know, on the other side of the court, but as the ball is on its way, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm open. Uh, the ball's like kind of getting to me and he's probably at the midline as I'm like touching the ball with my hands and starting to get, starting to turn to the basket. I'm like, well, I'm still open. I've got, you know, another 20 some feet. Now I'm like kind of starting to swing, do the arm swing up. And now he's, you know, a couple of steps closer and he ends up blocking it like halfway between me and the basket. And I was shooting a three, you know, college three. So that kind of idea is what you can probably get from that is that they, they're just, they just move faster. And because of that length, they can cover more of the court than you'd ever expect to do. So, so I would, I would assume that most of those people that are be talking trash, they wouldn't even get their shot off. Um, you know, and if they did, because they've rushed it like that, I mean, it probably hit the side of the backboard if they were lucky. Oh, I love <laughs> that. I, uh, I heard a comparison between the European league, uh, the top European league in the NBA. And somebody said that basically in the NBA, you have eight, a plus athletes on the court at one time, 
But in the European League, you might have one or two A plus athletes. Like even just at the top of the professional games, that's the difference. And I, I yeah. love that explanation. Um, and I think you know the other piece is interesting too. Is like there's a lot of players who aren't like the quote unquote all stars who, if they were in the right position, the right place could very well put up the same production, the same point. So a lot of times the skill gap isn't as far as a lot of people think it is, you know, like, like Mike James, great example of that is the, the dude who lights up the EuroLeague comes over to the NBA. If they're running, you know, plays for him, he's probably going to score at the same clip. So a lot of it just depends on situation that a lot of people don't understand as well. For sure. Absolutely. So last question, uh, uh, series starts tomorrow. I don't want to spoil anything for coach Nick, uh, coach Colin, I'll ask you first then. Uh, who do you got uh, for uh, Golden State Boston? Who do I got? Well, I'm a little conflicted because I, I do love Golden State, you know, from a shooting perspective. You know, you got Clay, you got Steph, you got Jordan Poole. Uh, the shooting coach in me is like, like wants Golden State to win. Um, you know, and I, I love kind of, you know, the, the motion, the movement, the back cuts, you know, from like a basketball perspective, that's the kind of hoops I like watching. So I want Golden State to win uh, on that standpoint, but I'm going to pick Boston uh, just because their defense is absolutely lights out. I mean, I'm sure Nick can talk about that a lot more than I can. Cause we don't call it defense mechanics. That's for sure. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, I do. Uh, so there Peyton Pritchard, one of the Boston players I've worked out a couple of times. Uh, one of his high school coaches is a good buddy of mine. So definitely rooting for him and, and the success uh, overall. I just want to see a great series, but I think Boston will edge it out because their, their defense is lights out. Coach Nick. No, if I, well, if I had to use the uh, game seven, fourth quarter as an indication, then this is going to be over in five uh, because the Celtics just had too many lapses where they kind of just forget how they're supposed to play. Uh, even though in, for most of that series, when I kept calling it, Boston's going to win this one because they're clearly the better team and they clearly have these huge stretches of time where they're just, they're playing really great. Um, but they're, they don't have a lot of, they don't have any finals experience on that team versus what the Warriors do. And I think that's going to be huge, huge for them. Warriors have home court advantage. So I'm going to call this for Warriors and six. I think that's what's going to happen with oh, that. I think that okay. they, remember, this is the first time, time uh, that number one and number two defensive rated teams have played each other in the finals for like, I don't know, forever, for a long, long time. So however good the Celtics are on defense, <laughs> the Warriors are just as good. And so that's what's going to be really fascinating. And I think it's going to be a glimpse into the future of the game. You'll have some probably ultra small ball lineups they're going to throw out there. Um, and even though, even though they go, you know, Robert Williams and Horford, like traditional bigs to start, but you're going to see some small ball stuff that's out there. It's crazy. You're going to see the kind of skip passing uh, and attack on the catch that we've been developing all these years uh, into a frenetic, the half court's going to be frenetic. It's going to be almost like fast breaking in the half court. So we're going to, it's going to be, um, it, it's going to, you're going to get like, uh, motion sickness from from what's going to happen in this game in this series, uh, and I'm all for it. I'm excited to see what's going to happen, but I suspect that we can point to this moment uh, ten years from now and realize that if, when the game doesn't look anything like it does now in ten years, this is probably going to be one of the moments where we're looking at it going, "Wow, this is this is the glimpse that we got into the future." I love it. Ah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, coaches, uh, for the hour. Uh, where can people find you and uh, and any exciting projects coming up? So, Coach Nick. Uh, well, you know, if you type in B-ball, it'll autofill B-ball breakdown for you on YouTube. <laughs> I've been, I've been doing it that long. Um, and that's where you find me for you know, Twitter also as well, but Instagram, I have, by the way, Snapchat, I have a very successful Snapchat channel really? now sponsored by Snapchat. So go watch it there. And, um, it's really cool to watch it kind of like vertical, by the way. So, uh, a lot of stuff's there and, um, you know, who knows, maybe Colin and I will end up, uh, doing something together sooner than later. I would love to see both of you also just hooping one-on-one, maybe dream shaking each other. That'd be fantastic. 
Oh, wow. You see more jelly from me nowadays. It'd have to be a catch and shoot contest for me. I'm sorry. How about yourself, Coach Colin? Where's the best place to find you? Yeah, you can find me at uh, Shop Mechanics on everything. You know, no space, uh, capital S, capital M. Um, and, you know, YouTube's definitely the biggest one that we focus the most on, but, you know, have a, a decent Instagram following and whatnot. Um, and then, you know, kind of for the other media stuff, I check out playerstv.com. Uh, currently, our channel is distributed in just over 200 million households and devices. Um, so, you know, what uh, essentially, you know, uh, MTV did for music and the cooking channel did for cooking, we're trying to do for professional athletes. Fantastic. Thank you so much. That was uh, amazing. I'm sure our listeners will love it. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. Much appreciated.